When my oldest son was a teenager, about 10 years ago, he told me he was hearing owls call at night in our backyard. He said he saw two in the maple tree just off our patio and that he thought they were barred owls. We live in a suburban neighborhood in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Barred owls, while pretty common still in the Northeast, are usually found in mature forests. And we have only a narrow band of trees at the very back of our property, but it hardly qualifies as a forest. Sometime that summer, or the one after that, I wasn't really keeping track, I discovered a little row of baby bunnies laid out, dead, and decapitated in one of my raised garden beds. What sicko would do that, I fumed. My brother said that he'd read somewhere that smaller owls might just take the heads since the entire body might be too heavy to fly away with. We also have red-tailed hawks in the neighborhood, so maybe it was a hawk? It sure seemed like the bunnies were put there as some kind of warning or some kind of presentation of power. Then at some point one winter a few years ago, we had several close encounters with our barred owl visitor. Once it was just sitting perched on the basketball hoop ring in our driveway. Then another evening, as we were driving back from swim team practice, we saw the owl standing at least three feet tall in the middle of our front yard. I think our headlights had momentarily blinded the owl as we turned into the driveway. For the past several winters, mostly in December, February, or early March, we've seen a barred owl in the maple tree and have heard more than one calling out in the night. I love that owl, or that pair of owls. I consider them my neighbors. I know that they are keeping the wild mouse, chipmunk, and possibly squirrel population in check. We also have bunnies that hop around and wreak havoc with my patio potted plants and with some of the flowers in my native plant rain garden. We have a small herd of white-tailed deer that travel through the neighborhood every day. For several summers, a flock of wild turkeys struts through the yard. All these wonderful animals, along with blue jays, morning doves, cardinals, chickadees, wild bees, are all welcome to bide here. I decided a few years ago that I garden for them more than for me. They need what my land can provide much more than I do. My yard is my little piece of planet Earth to share with the wildlife around me. I nurture the land and in so doing, hope I'm doing my part for my wildlife neighbors. Little by little, biodiversity is increasing on my acre of Earth. At the same time though, most of the homeowners around me are cutting down their trees to make way for grassy lawns. In the 20 years since we moved to this area, so many trees have been taken down that it looks like a much newer suburban neighborhood than it really is. And there's no place for the wildlife to live. Hi, I'm Kate Sussman, a biologist at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. In today's episode, we'll talk about how our green monoculture lawns are actually toxic dead zones and how we can reimagine our lawns to make a difference in both the climate crisis and the biodiversity calamity underway. Episode 7, Our Lawns Are Biodiversity Deserts. First, what is biodiversity and why is it important? Biodiversity refers to all the living organisms, from humans to other animals, plants, fungi, and microorganisms like bacteria and protists, those little microscopic organisms found everywhere but that you might have seen in a drop of pond water in elementary or middle school. Biodiversity is the different varieties, the sort of richness of species, but also the numbers of the organisms, their abundance, that make up the biodiversity of an area, from an ecosystem to the planet. 
An ecosystem is the living life and their interactions with each other and with a particular environment that has characteristics like the type of soil, the rainfall, the temperature range, and other kinds of characteristics. An ecosystem can be small like a pond or a lake, or it can be large like a forest or a coral reef. Humans live in pretty much all ecosystems on the planet, and we have a pretty huge impact on how an ecosystem functions as well as the biodiversity there. We are the ultimate invaders as we conquer the land and nature around us for our own uses. Biodiversity is crucial to having healthy ecosystems that provide us with clean water, clean air, a moderation of the temperature, protection from storms, food, shelter. We need varieties of pollinators for the majority of flowering plants and trees to reproduce. We need insects and soil organisms to decompose and return dead matter to the soil cycles. It is biodiversity that gives us our water cycle, really. As we lose trees, the region becomes drier and the soil erodes away. It is life that keeps water flowing. Biodiversity makes life possible. The more we kill off that diversity, the riskier our lives become. We're not used to thinking about biodiversity as being something close at hand where we live. Most of the time, when we hear about the biodiversity crisis or the human-caused mass extinction of life on the news or TV, it's all about coral reefs or tropical rainforests in the Amazon or the Arctic tundra. Somewhere far away. Not in our backyards or neighborhoods, right? But no, the biodiversity crisis is everywhere that humans are, which is everywhere including and especially our neighborhoods, since we are rapidly paving, developing, and converting land to human-dominated places. The suburbs are the fastest-growing types of development. So I've been thinking a lot about suburbs, like the area where I live. Here's how I would describe my suburb as an ecosystem. There are small areas that are forested, interspersed by homes sitting on plots of grass with a few non-native trees. There are many roads and fences that divide up the areas. There are also paved parking lots, strip malls, gas stations. Streets in most parking lots are lined with streetlights that are on all night. Many homes have motion-activated bright white spotlights mounted to their garages, or their walks are dotted with little lights. Traffic ebbs and flows, but cars and trucks are on the move all night long. The quietest time is right around 3.30 a.m., but traffic noise builds steadily throughout the day. My area is part of the larger watershed of the Hudson River, so there are many creeks and tributaries that run underneath and beside the roads. The living organisms include deer, coyotes, red foxes, owls, turkeys, Canadian geese, mallard ducks, songbirds, crows, vultures, red-tailed hawks, snakes, frogs, turtles, fish, lots of living organisms. In addition, we have humans, dogs, and cats everywhere out and about. It feels like there's a whole lot of life around us, but appearances can be deceiving. Suburbs make up about 25% of the developed land in this country, with lawns and turf alone about 40 million acres. Suburbs are the most rapidly developing areas. In fact, a report in 2022 indicated that 90% of all growth in U.S. metropolitan areas since 2010 was suburbs, with the most rapid growth in the South and West. 
As we extend our population into the remaining undeveloped forests and wetlands, replacing the ecosystems with lawns, roads, and shopping malls, we push the wildlife out, even eliminating insects, birds, and other organisms. Some organisms can thrive in areas near humans, including white-tailed deer, turkeys, and seed-eating birds, but the overall diversity of life has greatly declined. Of course, we weren't in the area before we invaded and colonized it, and so we don't really have a good sense of what was lost. We also don't have much sense of how 20 to 30 years of chemical treatments and fertilized monoculture and non-native ornamental plantings have slowly killed off the insects, which hollows out the whole ecosystem. While it looks like we have plenty of wildlife, the diversity has really plummeted to a few types that can live in proximity to humans. We've been lulled by the deer invasions into our backyards into a false sense of nature being okay where we live. However, what's been happening in my suburban ecosystem, as well as all across the globe, is a drastic reduction in the numbers of living organisms, especially animals and plants, as well as the variety of living organisms. I'll spare us all the usual litany of just how alarming is the overall decline of biodiversity in all ecosystems but the degree of destruction to the other living things on the planet is severe. And let a famous biologist named Edward O. Wilson to call for us to save 50% of the planet. He calls that the half earth project in order for wildlife to recover. The UN's Biodiversity Conference, COP15, in December 2022, adopted the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, which calls for humanity to set aside 30% of land, coastal areas, degraded ecosystems, and oceans under protection by 2030 in an attempt to reduce the ongoing global mass extinctions. Well, let's think about this a little bit. About 90% of the land in the U.S., is dominated by us humans in the form of agricultural land, which is 41%, and the privately owned and human-built landscapes of cities, suburbs, and the like that weighs in at 54%. We simply do not have 30% of the U.S. land to just set aside for nature. In 2022, about 3.6 of U.S. land is in the form of national parks, with more than half of that in Alaska. We do not have a lot of forest and wetlands that are undeveloped, but much of it, 78% of that, is privately owned by corporations and is not protected from development. Back to our questions. How have suburban lawns reduced biodiversity? Stephen DiStefano and Richard DeGraff wrote in a 2003 article in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment that in 1990, 20% of U.S. land was developed in the form of urban and suburban areas, home to 200 million people. In the 30 or so years since that article, the development of urban and suburban land outward has continued at a breakneck pace, with now estimates of more than a quarter of all land having been converted to residential and suburban sprawl. To study the impacts of these changes, a whole new field called urban ecology has grown up. Lawns within urban and suburban areas take up more acreage in the U.S. than is taken up by the top eight crops combined. So that's more than corn, soybean, orchard fruit, pistachios, sugar, cotton, and tomatoes. 
Imagine if we reimagined our lawn fetish and instead planted native plants, shrubs, and trees. Imagine how much biodiversity we could return to our land. Our lawns can replenish biodiversity and serve as true carbon sinks rather than helping to hurt the climate. There would be less air pollution and less carbon emissions because of the need for less use of lawn equipment. There would be less waste of our precious fresh water. There would be far fewer pesticides and fertilizers in our waterways and our bodies. And Americans would spend less money and time on their lawn upkeep. Oh, and our health and that of lawn care professionals would improve. A quick trip using Google Earth can give a sense of scale of our outward spiraling sprawl that we call development. With the rise of the suburbs in the decades after World War II, cities have ever-widening circles of suburbs connected to the cities with vast multi-lane highway systems. If you use Google Earth to explore an aerial view of a U.S. city heading in any direction, you'll notice that as you radiate out from the city center, first you'll see densely packed homes arranged in square blocks. These homes, row houses, and apartment buildings often do not have front or backyards, but rather there might be a neighborhood park or a baseball diamond. There might be trees clustered along the streets. Most cities have a multi-lane highway system encircling them, and outside of that ring, you'll begin to see single-family homes still all lined up along streets with driveways, but each home sits roughly in the middle of a rectangular patch of green grass. Sometimes each housing division is laid out in curves and the plots are larger. You'll of course also see schools with their athletic fields, a park or two, golf courses. Farther out, you'll see larger homes on larger plots of grass, and then maybe some farms and the residential outreaches of the next city. Highways and streets are everywhere, like an immense spider web. Altogether in the US, there are about 48 million residential properties, and that number grows each and every year as farms are sold to housing developers and forests and other land is cleared to make way for more suburbs, shopping malls, gas stations, and car dealerships. In most areas, when a farmer sells their land to a developer, the developer first completely clears the land, moves the soil and rocks around, digs to put in water, sewer, and electrical, and then lays out the paved roads and driveways. Then each home is built and the surrounding front and backyards are all planted with the same variety of turf grass. Sometimes an occasional tree remains from the original landscape, but most of the time small new trees, many of them non-native ornamentals like Bradford pears and weeping cherry, are planted at regular intervals. I've seen some residential developments plant a single tree in each front yard. Sometimes the areas in front of the homes are further landscaped with low-lying shrubs like junipers, but often it's just grass. As homeowners work their properties, many folks put in a small garden patch or put in some small shrubs like azaleas or rhododendrons along the walk to the front door or along the driveway. Many also have annual plantings of marigolds and patience and daylilies for spring and summer color. The lawns look well kept and green, neat and tidy. But behind the veneer of green lies a toxic wasteland that's killing off the foundational insects and soil organisms that is pulling out the rug from the rest of the animals and plants that depend on them. Because most insects are adapted to native plants for their food, planting non-native grasses, shrubs, and plants cannot provide these insects with food, 
and so the local surroundings suffer enormous insect diversity loss, which essentially hollows out the ecosystem of the other organisms that depend on the insects for pollination and food. And of course, direct, directly killing them in mass numbers with pesticides and herbicides doesn't help either. A study published in 2009 by Karen Burghardt, Douglas Tallamy, and Gregory Shriver in the journal Conservation Biology examined the biodiversity in six different suburban properties, half planted with native plants, shrubs and grasses, and half planted with non-natives and turf grass. They discovered that the properties planted with natives supported lots more diversity in wildlife, including insects and birds. It was a very cool study showing that you, you can make a difference pretty quickly just by changing your approach to your own yard. We all need to change how we think about saving land for nature, and we need to welcome nature into our surroundings. And here's where suburban areas can make a great contribution to our goal of preserving some of our precious biodiversity to keep our crucial ecosystems going. If we can change how we manage and think about that land, we as individual homeowners and suburban communities can make a difference for the climate and for the diversity of life around us. So how can you create an oasis for biodiversity in your yard? This is the hot new rage among many homeowners who are concerned about the climate and about the collapse of ecosystems. But most of us out here in the suburbs bought a home that has a grass lawn. We immediately had to start mowing and maintaining that lawn because to quote, let it go would mean we're sloppy, good for nothing neighbors. Fortunately, a culture change is happening. Homeowners in many urban and suburban areas are getting together and joining or even forming organized groups to educate each other and work together to bring back native plants and to learn how to create a diverse and beneficial area that is free of pesticides, free of excess synthetic fertilizer, and has much reduced grass monoculture. For example, there's an organization called the Pollinator Pathway, which is a grassroots organization that started in 2017 in Wilton, Connecticut. The East Coast Pathway was inspired by the work of Seattle environmentalist Sarah Bergman in 2007. The list of homeowners and garden groups that have put their properties on the East Coast Pollinator Pathway has grown to over 200 towns in the Northeast region. Those participating agree to go pesticide-free and to plant native plants and flowers to encourage the recovery of pollinator insects and birds. Their website has lots of terrific information about plants that work and how to create a colorful haven for pollinators in your yard. The Audubon Society and the National Wildlife Federation, as well as the Sierra Club, National Garden Clubs, and a growing group called Wild Ones, all have great websites and information about what native plants work in your zip code, as well as how-to videos and even garden designs. Another initiative gaining steam and making a difference is the Habitat Homegrown National Park Org, founded two years ago by University of Delaware entomologist and best-selling author Dr. Douglas Tallamy and business development specialist Michelle Alfandri. I am thrilled that I was able to speak with Dr. Tallamy about his efforts and about ways we can help with the biodiversity crisis. Hello, Dr. Tallamy, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> 
You've been getting the word out for many years with a number of terrific books and videos and interviews. And a number of years ago, you co-founded the Homegrown National Park Organization. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey there. What led you towards starting Homegrown National Park? And what are its missions and goals? Okay, it, it's a long journey. Um, I'm an entomologist and I was studying behavioral ecology for the first you know, 20 years of my, my career. Uh, but my wife and I moved into a new property in Oxford, Pennsylvania in the year 2000, which was a farm that had been broken up into 10 acre lots. Uh, and it had been mowed for hay, but taken out of mowing before we moved in. And when we moved in, it was thoroughly invaded with all the non-native invasive species from, from Asia. Autumn olive and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and multiflora rose and on and on and on. Uh, so first thing we had to do was, was cut trails just so we could walk through our property. And as an entomologist, I looked for insects. Uh, and it was very obvious right away. There aren't any insects on these, these uh, Chinese plants. And there are... There was, you know, we have a few black oaks and, and black cherries and things like that with normal loads of, of insects. And I said, well, gee, this will make a good undergraduate research project. I, I was not excited about it because we learned about host plant specialization in the 70s in graduate school. Everybody knew this. This was not news. Um, and there was a young lady at school who said, yes, I'd like to do a research project. So I said, the first thing you should do is look in the literature and see what's already been done on the, the impacts of, of non-native plants on insects. So she came back a couple of days later and she said, Can I, I can't find anything. Said, okay, well, I'll look. And I couldn't find anything either. There was a big long list of why invasive plants are not so great for our ecosystems, but wrecking the food web was not on that list. And that's what read me, led me to uh, really the research we've been focused on for the last 20 years. Um, and I learned a lot. You know, I learned that the invasive plant problem is much bigger than I thought it was. Uh, I learned where it came from. These are the plants we brought in as ornamentals for our yards. And even the, the ornamentals that are non-invasive are still in our yards. They're the first trophic level. Uh, and so what's the impact on, on the food web? I also learned, even though I'm an entomologist, entomologists don't know how important insects are for other creatures. <laughs> I mean, it takes thousands and thousands and thousands of caterpillars to get one clutch of, of chickadees to the point where they leave the nest. Mm. I didn't know that. So where wow. are these caterpillars coming from? They are not coming from multiflora rose. So that's what got me me going. Um, so I wrote, uh, first book I wrote was, was uh, Bringing Nature Home. And in, in looking for statistics for that book, I came across the statistic that we have 40 million acres of lawn mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, which is an area the size of New England, dedicated to an ecological deadscape. So exactly, I remember, I remember sitting in my my kitchen Sunday morning saying, "Well, what if we cut that area in half? So what if we 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 everybody cut their area of lawn in half? That would give us twenty million acres we could restore uh, to you know some some level of ecosystem function right at home." I said, "Gee, we could create a new national park. I'll call it Homegrown National Park." And then I added up the major national parks in, in the U.S. And, you know, you add them all up and it's still less than 20 million acres. So I said, wow, this would be the biggest park in the country. So that then sounds, I wrote, It's such an exciting idea. And, you know, the question is, we're, you know, how do we get the word out? How do we spread this to sort of get people, get people engaged? Well, that is exactly where our small nonprofit Homegrown National Park came from. I gave a talk in... in 
in uh, Connecticut and a woman who had just retired from Manhattan as a business businesswoman. Uh, her neighbor dragged her to the talk. She never would have come otherwise. Uh, and she came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, you're, you're only talking to the choir. And I said, yeah, I know it's only the choir who invites me. But she said, this will be great if you get the message to the non-choir. And I said, well, I know that's social media and all the stuff I don't do. And she said, well, I do do that. Let's start this nonprofit. And that's that's what really got it going. And the object is to to use social media, but mostly the the um, motivation to get your property on the map as as part of this restoration I'm talking about. We want that the message that everybody's an important component of conservation to go viral. Everybody, not just the the choir, uh, and and the competition of getting your property in the map and watching it light up and watching the whole U.S. light up. That's supposed to be a motivating factor for people who don't know this, uh, and it seems to be working. So yeah, we're excited about it. Oh, that's really good news. You know, um, I live in a neighborhood much like everyone else's neighborhood in a suburb, you know, I am in the Hudson Valley. So we have this natural beauty and there's, uh, there's been a sort of a long history of caring about the environment in the Hudson Valley, but we're sort of schizophrenic in a way because at the same time, as farms, horse farms, other kinds of farms, um, as the folks retire, their land is their retirement, right? And so they sell it to developers and they turn into McMansions and and suburban lots everywhere. And so, you know, a lot of people around here really don't know much about gardening, particularly with native plants. Um, it can be really daunting to think about converting your little plot of grass that you inherited when you bought the home into some kind of natural preserve. And so, you know, are there easy ways that that people could kind of make some helpful changes right away to sort of dip their toes into the pond, so to speak? There are several ways. You can decide whether they're easy or not. But I mean, this is why we call this a grassroots movement to solve the biodiversity crisis, because most of the country is privately owned. And if everybody does this on their private property, you've got this army of millions of people all fighting to preserve biodiversity. The obvious thing is what I started with. Let's cut the area of lawn in half. How do you do that? Well, in the Hudson Valley, I would add trees. There's almost everybody can, has room to more, put more trees on your property. And underneath those trees, let's make it the best tree, which would be one of the oaks. You put a bed and that bed should be as big as you can, you can make it. Um, and there's important reasons for that. The caterpillars that are feeding the birds that are on that oak drop from the tree when it's time to mature and burrow underground if they can get underground or they pupate in the leaf litter that's under the tree. And when you have grass right up to the tree, the soil is so compacted they can't get underground and there is no leaf litter. So modifying the area under the tree is very good for the, the food web, but it also cuts the area of lawn. It reduces the area of lawn. If you put a bed under every single tree, you've, you've narrowed your lawn to swaths of grass that allow you to walk through your, your property. Um, that's a cue for care. That means we can do this without bucking the culture. Uh, the lawn you keep will be manicured, but uh, you're gonna have a lot less of it. Of course, you don't have to put anything on it either. That's the other, I mean, that's, that's just marketing by the fertilizer and, and chemical companies. That's the most effective thing you can do. The other thing is 
you can get rid of the invasive plants that are on your property. Most people do have them and they don't know it. Um, and you can choose the right plants. So the right plants, uh, it's not just native versus non-native. There, there are a few natives, 14% of our native plants are making 90% of that caterpillar food that drives the food webs. I call them keystone plants and they're the ones that we need to favor at least in the beginning here. So choosing the right plant to get on your, your property is another easy thing to do. But you are right. Most people don't garden at all. They just hire somebody. They hire the Moblo and Go guys. So I want to create a new industry of ecological landscapers so all these people can just hire them. They will install the plants. They'll take care of them. They'll reduce your lawn. They'll do all of that. And it can be the same Moblo and Go guys if they get trained so nobody has to lose their jobs. The idea that humans are here in nature someplace else uh, was that worked when there were just a few of us. It doesn't work now. There is no someplace else. This conservation where there are a lot of humans, uh, and we've got to give that that notion up. And that means right at home. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, so I I already have an oak tree, and actually I'm going to plant more. I read your book about oak trees and the the season. The seasons of the oak and i have a i have a neighbor who has a beautiful incredible oak tree and it just you know pummels the area with with acorns and how quickly do you think we could convince people like if 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 someone decides to start this in their lawn to sort of set an example and walks around the neighborhood saying i have an oak tree and it's a wonderful thing and there are all these great birds that weren't there before so how quickly do you think people could expect to see these positive changes i've been talking about this for 20 years and i do see the needle moving um, and it's moving faster and faster uh, but we could change the culture overnight if we change the tax system. Your neighbor ought to get a tax break for all the ecosystem services her oak is, is producing. She wouldn't think twice about cutting it down and getting rid of it because of the acorns. As a matter of fact, she shouldn't be allowed to do that. It is a, it is a community asset. It is running the ecosystems we all depend on. I talk about our yards as being not like Las Vegas. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Well, what happens on your yard does not stay on your yard. If you poison the watershed on your yard, it affects everybody else. If you, if you kill all the pollinators with lawn and pesticides on your property, it affects everybody else. If you get rid of your oak tree, you've gotten rid of the birds that depend on those, those caterpillars. That impacts the entire ecosystem. When everybody does that, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So the way we landscape is it's a community asset, you know, and they're, they're, it's not just ethical, um, it's essential. These are the ecosystems we depend on. That's another, you know, disconnect. We're so disconnected from nature, we don't think we need it. We like it, we enjoy it, but we don't see it as essential. It is essential. And it's not someplace else. It's right where we live. And that oak tree she has is extremely valuable community asset. It's got to be protected. Yeah, yeah. And folks in neighborhoods, they do admire, especially in this area in the fall, they do admire each other's trees. You know, so I have this beautiful red maple in my front yard with a perfect kind of canopy and shape to it and beautiful leaves. And folks in the neighborhood love that tree. You know, if I were to cut down that tree, they would be sad, you know, and so trying to sort of help us think of our neighbor's properties as value added for us and, and our life. For them. Your yeah. tree and her tree, that oak tree is going to increase her property value by thousands of dollars. That's been documented. 
so she she doesn't want to throw that away yeah yeah so um do you have any other advice or anything else you'd like to say to our audience um folks wanting to maybe think of making some of these changes or getting the word out to their own neighbors yeah two things very quickly there are four things that every landscape has to do if we're going to reach a sustainable relationship with the natural world that supports us and not reaching that is not not an option our landscapes have to sequester carbon. We got to store carbon. We've got to support pollinators, not for agriculture, but because they they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. So not having pollinators is not an option. Um, we've got to manage the watershed. It's plants on our landscape that manages the watershed, uh, and we've got to support the food web. The plants we choose are going to capture energy from the sun, turn it into food, and pass it on. If we choose the wrong plants, they don't pass it on. Lawn doesn't do any of those things. It is the very worst choice. As a matter of fact, it wrecks the watershed. It kills the pollinators. It doesn't support a food web. Look, sequestering carbon is the worst plant choice for sequestering carbon. Um, so those are, in, those are important reasons to reduce the area you have in lawn. And the, other, the last thing I want to emphasize is that it is your responsibility to do this. If, if we're going to, to um, claim that we own a piece of the earth, then you also own the responsibility of taking care of that piece. Uh, and if you don't want that responsibility, fine, move to Manhattan, move someplace else where somebody else will take care of it. But um, it, is, it is, as a property owner, it is your responsibility either to do it yourself or hire somebody. Great messages, really important to do. Yeah, it, it's, it's truly enriching to be able to have um, the variety and diversity of life around us, as opposed to these endless little squares of, of green everywhere. Well, I guess that can be the final message is that you will see the results. This is an environmental crisis, the biodiversity crisis that you can, you can help solve and see that you've actually done something. You know, it's very tough for one person to do something and see a difference in climate change, but you really can see biodiversity come to your yard. It's enormously entertaining and there are a lot of health issues involved there. It lowers your blood pressure. You're, you know, you're, you're less stressed. All kinds of wonderful things happen when you interact with nature right where you live. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's an inspirational, can-do message that we can all use our little plots of land to try to help save insects and, and all the incredible life that depends on them. And at the same time, creating a space of beauty to live in and enjoy. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to just rush out into my backyard and, and get planting. Don't forget your front yard. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. And right. um, thanks for all that you do. Thank you. All right, take care. Take care, bye. Bye-bye. I hope you'll join the podcast next week for the last episode of Toxic Lawn. I'll bring all the episodes together and we'll set out a simple guide for ways you can immediately begin to detoxify your property and to help to change our obsession with a toxic green desert into an obsession for a multicolor Garden of Eden. Thanks for joining. The music for today's podcast comes to you from Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com and some of the sound effects came from Freesound.com.